Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On this episode on the the Behind the Mask podcast, we're going to be talking about COVID-19, the effect that it has on rural America, the disparities in the African-American community, and last but not least, what can we continue to do to stay safe? Let's go behind the mask. Welcome back to another edition of the Behind the Mask podcast. I am your host, Takeo Spikes, joined alongside by my co-host. Tuton Reyes, how's it going? What's up, Tu? How you feeling today, my brother? I'm feeling well, man. Another day in paradise. Another day in paradise. And what makes it even better, we have a special edition of the Behind the Mask podcast. This edition is going out to the COVID-19 special. And since we don't know everything, we take great pride in finding people who are subject matter experts at their craft. And this COVID-19 special is, 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 is going to be different because we know how hard it hits the major cities across the US. Uh, this is different because it's hitting rural areas. And when you look at rural areas in America, it has always been under served when it comes to getting their due diligence and getting the resources that major cities have. It's special to me because I'm from a rural area in Georgia. So uh, to put this into context for you, let's talk about a, a county that was highlighted a week ago. Hancock County, the city of Sparta, Georgia. With just 8,500 people, Hancock has reported 170 cases of COVID-19, the fourth highest number per capita in the state, higher than any other county outside of Albany region in Southern Georgia. Recently, a nursing home reported 14 deaths to the Department of Public Health due to coronavirus, making their total for the county of Hancock now up to 18. So without further ado, we're gonna bring in our special guest, Dr. Jean Sumner, Dean of Mercer University School of Medicine, and Dr. Talisa Spikes. She her research is focused on social determinants of health. Ladies, welcome to the show and how are you doing? Thank you. Glad Thank to you. be here. Doing well and happy to be here. Dr. Sumner, we know and we just briefly just gave some mentions of the numbers of Hancock County. Uh, as far as what they're going through, and we know about the metro area, but what exactly does this mean when we hear those numbers like that, to be a, such a small county and to be rated the fourth highest county per capita with the number of people who are infected? Hancock County historically is one of the most important counties in the history of Georgia and the nation. Really, it was a center in the 1700s of agricultural excellence of research, of diversity, of um, fairness, of uh, progressive thought. People came from around the world. Um, they brought in great leaders and, and uh, there was a lot of progressive thought coming out of Hancock County, but sadly the county has fallen in hard times like much of rural America and rural Georgia. And it is uh, a county now plagued by severe poverty uh, and certainly by lack of health services, um, desperately in need of more primary care services in a, in a county. I, I know Hancock County well. 
I think all of us do. It's near where we all grew up, perhaps. And um, but it's a, it has resilient, good families who care about each other and who care about their community. But they are not well served by the infrastructure of healthcare. Access is severely lacking, and so people in rural areas, particularly older people and and people of color, are reluctant to access services for a number of reasons. One is they're not nearby. Two is a lack of trust. Three is the quality that can be available to uh, people who are uninsured or underinsured. Um, and then the, the older people have a hard time traveling to care. There aren't, there's not a hospital in the county. There's no 24 seven access to care in the county. So if you say um, get sick at four o'clock in the afternoon, your only alternative is an emergency room um, and that may be 40 miles away. So it's, it's a very challenging situation. And as Georgians, we must do better. And Dr. Sumner, uh, this seems to be something that has been uh, consistent throughout time now. Uh, the major cities, I'm from New York City, the major cities are always looked at first while the rural areas are over, uh, often overlooked and underserved. So what are some of your biggest concerns right now, particularly with the pandemic going on in that community of, that you're talking about. You now, when they're when they're one of the sad things about healthcare often is it's driven by um, by corporations and uh, and profit margin. Um, a, a state like Georgia desperately needs its rural areas. They produce food, they produce fiber, they produce um, industrial uh, elements, things that go into industry. They have they have resilient, good pop people who live there who have a sense of, of ownership of those communities, but sit urban solutions do not work in rural areas. And, and rural communities have lost trust in the larger system because you cannot take a solution that works well in New York City and downsize it to work in Hancock County. It can't happen. Uh, we've designed a healthcare system that works for the insured and the affluent but the marginalized populations and populations that are skeptical, and our parents and grandparents were very skeptical of access to care. They didn't go to the doctor until they were sick and uh, because of money and um, still kind of have that mindset. Um, but now, even if they have benefits, it is hard to access care in a timely manner. And, you, and that long-term relationship with a physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA is really hard to establish if you have no direct care in your community. So those things matter in rural areas. Also, the idea that somehow people in rural communities don't deserve the same standard of care as you do in urban areas. I actually think providers can practice better care in a rural community because you're part of that community, you know your patients, you have continuity, you can marshal resources, and families and communities are supportive of each other. So we have the potential to do much better, but we've done a very poor job of addressing the needs of rural America. Dr. Spice, I wanna to go to you. Your research focuses on hypertension disparities and heart disease, which is focused on, that is disproportionately affected by cardiovascular disease. Black people are becoming susceptible. Why is that? Um, susceptible to heart disease or COVID? 
just just susceptible to COVID? Uh, so, so it's a twofold issue, and Dr. Sumner um, eloquently touched on it briefly. But the health of African Americans in this country and in the South, uh, specific, uh, just in general, have been disproportionately poor compared to whites in this country. And historically, um, it, it, it starts from a macro-social. Um, we, we can't talk about health disparities without talking about the ugly elephant in the room, um, you know, racism. And, and this goes back to even just the slavery days. You know, if slaves were sick, they couldn't go to the slave master and say, um, I'm sick, I need to go to the doctor. And so, you know, it, so it, it's, it's rooted in inequity and, and it's not an easy fix, but let's bring it back to the present time. Now, you have African-Americans still dying younger at younger ages compared to whites in this country. And many of the conditions that they are afflicted of can be managed if care was sought earlier in the spectrum versus much later. And as Dr. Sumner just stated, by the time that they come to seek care, they are already, already really, really sick. Um, and so it's a lot of lost time in between that time. So with that being said, why is it that Blacks specifically are really burdened by COVID? It's because of things like pre-existing conditions, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. So when you think about these um, comorbid conditions that you know they already have, and then you add now this virus on top of that, you know it's it's almost like it's a no-win situation. And so that that and you know on the sad part is the health disparities in the the well let me back up the poor health of blacks has already been here, but the COVID virus has just pulled back the 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 blanket of our dirty laundry to just expose what um, many healthcare providers and healthcare researchers always knew for a long time that health disparities exist. And why is it that Black Americans specifically, the health is not good? Even though we can't compare Fulton County to Hancock County to Washington County, because there's just different. Uh, but when you look at the results as far as people that are affected in this county, which is very small, are the cases themselves more severe or even leading quick to quicker deaths compared to bigger major counties that are in the state? Um, I would say, I wouldn't necessarily say that the deaths may be incomparable to what's going on in other cities. But again, if you, you have to take into consideration what pre-existing conditions or comorbidities that this segment of the population has. So if they have these things already going on, again, some of these other health conditions, and now you add this virus on top of that, it increases their likelihood of fatality significantly. Um, so they're more, more prone to die. Um, one thing we do not know is how long are they waiting before they seek care? Um, 
Are they going to seek testing and maybe they're being turned away because there are no tests available? Um, as we know, there's still an issue here in Georgia, um, even though it's said that it's free COVID testing, but when people are trying to go and seek for free testing, they're being told that it's $300. And some of these people, as you know, this public health crisis has now turned into a big economic downfall. So many people are either furloughed or have lost their jobs, and that means no health insurance. So now you add on to the fact now that they're having these symptoms, maybe they're trying to get tested, and they're thinking that the test is free. They go seek for testing, and then they're being told that, oh, it's a cause. What you think is going to happen, people are going to go away and go back home, and only to get worse and eventually, you know, sustain a worse outcome. And, and you also yeah. think about if you if you feel bad and you say you have Medicaid and the only transportation you have is a van and that van's going to pick up 10 people and you may not have COVID when you get on, but you may have COVID when you get off. And so transportation is a disaster. Not only that, you're say you're a grandmother caring for her grandchildren while a daughter works or a son works you feel responsible for your family and you put off care for yourself. And then to even access care, you have to go to a completely different county. Mm -hmm. um, that care doesn't come to you. You have to go seek it out. And you don't have relationships with those providers. So, and, you know, they don't understand your social situation, your needs, and, and building that respect for each other and building the trust in the provider and the patient critical to, um, to transition in health status. Even, even the poorest, most uneducated family cares about their family. Right. And they want to make a difference. And if they have someone that cares about them and somebody who understands that circumstance and supports them, they can be as healthy as anybody because they're motivated. They've overcome huge obstacles. If you look at the rural South, the transition some of these families have made to the present is nothing short of incredible. They're smart. They may not have had the opportunity for education, but they're very capable and very resilient. We have got to bring care to them, to these communities. We also have to improve health literacy because it, you know, it doesn't have to be a a physician or a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a PA, you need to have health literacy, a health coach in your community, somebody you trust that you can call and run your symptoms by. And they say, honey, you need to get a doctor. I know one, I'm calling them. Um, but like Dr. Spikes referenced, testing is, has been inadequate in this state. It's increasing, but even if you get tested, who's going to take care of you? And often, uh, I mean, I never thought that I would see food deserts in rural Georgia. You know, everybody had a garden, but not now. And there are no fresh fruits and vegetables. And there are no, there's no way to easily access that. We don't, we don't have whole foods and fresh markets in rural Georgia. Um, and so it's very, very hard for people to get the nutrition they need often, particularly if they're of age. And, um, and poverty plays a role as well. The social services that support urban areas are not present abundantly in rural areas. And the excuse is there are not enough people. 
you know, to support that. But we've got to find a better way. I, I laughingly told my husband, and, and you two, y'all are all too young to remember, but there used to be a rolling store. The rolling store, you remember the rolling store they'd come through and they would have fresh milk and fresh vegetables and meat. And everybody went to the rolling store because you didn't, you didn't go to the grocery store every day like we do sometimes now. But the rolling store brought fresh fruits and vegetables and local produce to individuals at a reasonable cost. And we may have to go back there. Um, but there's just so much change that must occur. But, but advocacy like you're offering today for rural communities is hugely impactful. People need to understand that they're not asking for a handout. They're asking for a chance because they can, they can manage their own lives if somebody cares and somebody gives them a hand up. Um, so we've got to change that conversation. And I think this pandemic has really just exposed and put to the forefront a lot of the flaws in the healthcare system. Uh, unfortunately, we all know someone or, you know, a degree of separation away from someone that's been affected by this COVID-19 uh, virus. But I guess my question is, for people that do have pre-existing conditions, what are some of the, the best uh, pieces of advice you can give them, as well as people that are just healthy in terms of how they can continue to be healthy and, and maintain that way uh, with their families? Well, one thing I would say to that is, you know, just the, the obvious. It's still so much uncertainty around this virus. And I think that because the governor has given this you know, notion to start reopening Georgia, I think people are beginning to think, well, maybe it's safe, it's, it's not. So with that being said, I would strongly suggest that people treat this as a flu epidemic, you know. So limit your exposure, whether you're healthy or sick, this applies across the board, you know, practice good high hand hygiene, you know, try to maintain a healthy diet, to keep your immune system up as best as possible. Minimize exposure to groups because the thing is, you don't know. I mean, and the scary thing about this virus is that there are silent carriers. So for those silent people, you know, their immune system obviously is pretty strong where it can keep them safe. But for the others who may not be, to Dr. Sumner's point, for those, especially the people in the rural areas who rely on medical transportation, maybe just to get to a doctor's appointment, if they're exposed to other people, then there you go. It's a domino effect. But um, the other piece to that also, um, you know, we, you know, you just have to, everybody is not in a position where they can work from home. Um, I, I, I understand that and I appreciate that. And not even just the medical healthcare workers who are deemed essential, but even the people who are working in the grocery stores, um, retail, who have to be there. And even with them, wear masks, wear, wear gloves. You know, it's just the basic. Protect yourself at all costs because it's so much uncertainty and so many things we still do not know at this point about this virus. While you're waiting this out at home, you still can have some fun betting with our partner, betonline.ag. No NBA, NHL, or MLB, but don't worry. BetOnline still has hundreds of games, events, and sports to wager on. NASCAR is back. Madden and NBA 2K simulations. 
UFC, online casino with poker and blackjack. And be sure to check out the final dance with the roundtable interviews from ex-Chicago Bulls Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper as they discuss the Michael Jordan doc in full. They're still fun to be had, so go to betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. And, and communities of faith have always played a huge role in the rural South, particularly in communities of color. And so churches have got to help people understand and, and socially distance and support each other and get the message out. Because you can, you can take control of your community, but wearing those masks, understanding that plain old soap and water kills this virus, um, wash whoever washed fruit you know your your lemons and oranges but you need to wash your fruits and vegetables thoroughly um, you need to it can be a bandana it can be uh, whatever across your nose and mouth but you need to wear that and and clean it daily and keep you know be militant about that six foot <laughs> difference i mean stay apart because you cannot endanger yourself your family and your loved ones um, particularly young people, because they feel so um, less vulnerable, they, but they are. And young people may not die from it, but they carry it home to their parents and grandparents, and they can die from it. And so we have to stand up as citizens of rural areas and say, we care about our community, we care about each other. We're going to comply with these guidelines. We're going to distance, we're going to wear masks. And to Dr. Spike's point, we can't work from home because we don't have broadband. We need, we need internet connections. Children, you know, who were, I talked to a teacher in middle Georgia who had 47 students and sent them home to study from home. And of the 47 students, 45 did not connect in because they didn't have internet. Uh, I used to leave my office in Wrightsville and when I walked out, there would be young people sitting on the curb outside. And I'd go talk to them and say, what are you guys doing? They were actually tapping into my internet so they could do homework and read and access a book. That's inexcusable. So now we have telehealth. And if you had internet, you can, I can send you a link and I can see and talk with you as a physician in just a minute. And you can do it on a cell phone particularly if I know you or you're my patient, but these rural communities don't have internet. It's not profitable enough for the big internet providers. So they just, they go down interstates. I was looking at a map the other day by one of the large national providers. It was great coverage down I-75 and I-16 and around Metro Atlanta. There was no coverage in our area. And, and we've got to bring broadband to rural areas because broadband brings development and jobs and health care. And Dr. Sumner, when you talk about telemedicine, uh, a lot of people really don't know exactly what that is. They just assume that telemedicine is, okay, I'm gonna get on and do FaceTime. But to your point, in the area where you grew up, where I grew up, it's hard just to get a basic LTE signal, let alone to even think about trying to get a broadband network 
that's there to be able to, to pump out what you need to do. So can you expand more on the different types of telemedicine and how they are used? Thank you for that question. I've always been a supporter of tele, telehealth and telemedicine, or, or it really, it is the practice of medicine or healthcare using technology. And it is a way for a, a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a pharmacist to interact with an individual who needs care or guidance using technology. Georgia is fortunate. They have the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth, which is based in Albany. I mean, I'm sorry, in uh, Waycross. Um, that is a nonprofit that provides a large network of, of telehealth equipment. Um, but one, I guess, if anything good comes out of this pandemic, um, the federal government has lifted the, re the restrictions on telehealth. So my ability to look at my patient, interact with my patient, see what their blood pressure is, see what their blood sugar is, and keep that individual from having to come to my office to be exposed to other illnesses. Um, you actually, given the right equipment, can listen to someone's heart and lungs, look in their ears, nose, and throat very, very accurately. You can record that if necessary. You can take pictures of skin rashes or lesions. You can look for uh, lower extremity swelling or you can listen to lungs given the right equipment. And the equipment that it requires is getting less and less expensive. Um, but nevertheless, you can put that equipment in a rural community and they can access the right provider. The good thing is that the people who are, who are so confined in their homes, who need care the most, you can connect through telehealth. If a nurse goes into, a, a visiting nurse goes in and sees a lady who's 95, she could connect to my office and we could have a really good conversation about what needs to be done to that patient if we have broadband. In fact, one of the first telehealth projects in the nation with ambulances was done in Hancock County and Mercer used, um, uh, uh, Senator David Lucas from Macon asked us to look at Hancock County. We got some technology that was a military grade technology that and we put on ambulances and when the ambulance pulled up at the homes in Hancock County it was a hot spot so we had great telehealth and that was a project that managed to get the first ambulance system in the nation certified to be eligible for telehealth reimbursement through Medicaid which should help all people across rural Georgia and looking at this um, I'm sorry too I just want to finish up because I, you just made a point uh, when you look at it, and for me, I, I see it as a no-brainer when if you provide the access for the citizens to be able to get telehealth or to be able to provide them with the broadband network, why is it so hard understanding that there are barriers to keep people in rural Georgia away from telehealth? You know, um, the legislature last year in Georgia passed, and, and Dr. Spikes may know more about this than I do, passed legislation that um, that allowed the EMCs to put these fibers in the existing lines, and I don't think anything much has been done with that. Uh, I think it's time for people in rural areas to say, you know, we deserve the same standards, and, and you, know, you know, we grow. If you want to bring industry and jobs and health care to our areas, we've got to have internet. Um, my grandfather 
and grandmother used to tell me that they remember when electricity was turned on and that it, it was a custom in rural communities to celebrate the, they used to call it the REA, the Rural Electrification Administration, when they brought electricity to rural communities. I think we'll have the same kind of celebration if we ever get broadband, because we desperately need it. Um, but, you know, the sad thing is, it, and I'm, you know, I know like the Postal Service goes to everybody's house, no matter where you live, they'll show up eventually and they'll deliver the mail. We don't see broadband as a necessity often. It is a necessity nowadays. It is. You can't send a child to school that doesn't have homework on the internet. They can't always just stay after school. We, we need it for education. We need it for healthcare. We need it for um, interaction of our communities. We need it for meetings. Uh, and it's something that has to happen. Dr. Sparks, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or pieces of misinformation that are out there when it comes to the African-American community during this COVID-19 pandemic? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a lot of big misconceptions. I think it's just, un it's poorly misunderstood. Uh, I, I think it's a lot of questions from what I, I keep hearing. Why is it that Blacks are suffering more um, but again, it goes back to the whole piece of the comorbid conditions, pre-existing conditions that came before COVID. And, you know, just to that point, what Dr. Sumner mentioned before about EMC was approved to, you know, get the fiber optic in these rural towns, for instance, um, but nothing has been done about that. So in, in, and I'm speaking from experience with a mother who lives, still reside in a rural area, and she still has issues. But what I will say is that, you know, until a bigger macro social factors are addressed, you know, this cycle of the disparities, especially in rural communities, is going to continue to exist. So if we want the health status of our rural residents to improve, we have to be able to get better jobs, um, a better economic in, uh, infrastructure there, get people working, better wage paying jobs. Working at fast food restaurants is not enough. Um, you know, and just some people may say, well, well, a blood pressure medication is only $4 on the medication list, but only $4 can mean a lot, uh, that's a lot taken away um, from that household that could be attributed to some other pressing things that need priorities. So um, I would say that's the big mis misconception surrounding COVID in Blacks, especially in the rural communities, because it's such a different infrastructure when you compare it to that of urban areas and not really understanding the barriers that are there and what these barriers look like that people have to go through um, just across to be able to get the things that they need. I, I could not agree more, um, but the, the, the health disparities are critically important in, in the fact that African-American population has been severely affected by this virus, more so than the Caucasian population. Um, but again, 
improving health status, you've got to have access and you've got to have access to quality individuals who care about you and who, who, who want to help guide that journey into wellness. I do believe that in the same way that many changes happen in race relations and um, where there was a, there was a movement on behalf of, of equal rights, y'all are young. I lived through that. Um, that changed our country, not, not resolved it, but changed it to the better. As, as rural citizens, we can do that. As an educational institution, Mercer feels a deep obligation to provide young physicians who are community responsive, who are diverse, who will go in and serve those communities and bring the best of the best into those, um, those communities. Um, at Sandersville, where we grew up, had the first gallbladder surgery in America done in Sandersville. Um, we had at one point 21 doctors. What went wrong? What went wrong um, so that we don't have very many now? We can do better than that. We need, we need African-American physicians. We don't have many outside of urban areas. Um, why is that? We, we're, we're, as a school, are working really hard to address that. Um, we need to understand health disparities and integrate it, and we do integrate training and cultural competence for all physicians. Because you see, and I know Dr. Spike sees this as well, you see a preconceived notions, prejudiced, uh, jump to conclusion about things when they don't know. I, I, I've been there, lived there, worked with communities of color my entire life and have found that once they understand that you're their partner for life and you care about them and you make a house call on grandmama no matter where she lives or who she is you shape that behavior and, and we've got to have physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs who tear down those barriers because those barriers are thick and they've been built for a long time and and we have got to commit to tearing them down that we cannot tolerate them anymore because this pandemic has has disproportionately hurt an African-American population whose chronic health problems have not been adequately addressed. Um, uh, I couldn't agree more. And um, I, this is a, a personal question for me. Um, we follow the leadership of uh, the people in our country that lead this country, obviously the experts like yourselves. And um, we've been hearing for the past few months that COVID-19 is seasonal, like it'll go away. Uh, for both of you guys, do you think it is seasonal or endemic, meaning it'll come back? And the reason I asked that is because an article just came out uh, saying that China has uh, seen a spike of COVID-19 cases, and they're going to have to start to uh, put some of the country back on lockdown. We were looking at China as uh, basically looking into the future on how to handle it in the state. So do you see this being something that's seasonal? Uh, would it be back? What, what, what do we have to look forward to in the future? So right now I am doing my research in the School of Public Health at Emory and uh, many of the 
faculty there also have dual appointments in the CD, at the CDC. So based upon what I'm hearing right now, no, it's not seasonal. And again, it's so many unknowns about it. They're hypothesizing and hoping that as the temperatures become warmer, that that would inactivate the virus. Um, but the risk of it respiking once the fall fall season comes around is predicted to climb. But right now, they still do not know. So it's still so many uncertainties. Um, so they're, they're actively looking at this now. This virus is is rather smart. Um, I don't know if you probably heard, but um, they are reporting now that the strand of COVID that's on the West Coast is different from the strand that's now on the East Coast. So, you know, it seems it's a day-by-day -day thing that things are continuing to unfold and we're still learning about this virus. So, um, you know, that that's, so my, my thoughts about that right now is that it's still too early to tell. I think that's absolutely true. You know, people, it's like the antibody. We don't know whether it does offer immunity because we haven't had enough data. We don't know about the the uh, mortality truthfully because we're just beginning to get some data to look at that. We the and I and I say with confidence, most Chinese data that's coming out about this virus is, is skewed uh, and not necessarily accurate. There may be some accurate data, but they they have not been particularly truthful about it. If you look at other countries, Italy. Spain, uh, France, South Korea, those are, that is better data streams. Um, I do think that in the South, we're fortunate that we have sunlight and we have humidity. I never thought I'd be glad that we have hot days and high humidity, but apparently it does have some beneficial effect. But you go back and think about your grandparents and great-grandparents. They lived in houses with windows that opened, with big porches where they sat, they didn't go hug people like we do. And I mean, they, they, knew, they knew how to protect themselves from disease. Um, as a child, I had the measles. I came from a family of physicians, college graduates. My house was quarantined when I had the measles. I remember the public health nurse coming to check on me and my daddy was a doctor. It was just the way it was. You had an infectious disease, you stayed home till you weren't infectious. We, we've gotten away from public health practices that were fundamental to wellness in this country. We've just gotten sloppy. And who is most adversely affected? Poor families, families of color. We have got to get back to a public health infrastructure that has the power and the resources to implement um, the care these communities need as well. A strong public health presence in every community is really important, particularly in rural areas. Dr. Sumner, your, your message is heard loud and clear. And um, just to give you a little insight, a big part of our viewership is all across the country, a lot of people in rural areas. And so my question for you is, uh, what is your demand? What is your statement to them to make them realize uh, the danger that we're already at? And if they want to see change, what are some of the things that they will have to go out and do in order to promote change? Um, vote um, first, but also understand um, 
that we can't wait for it to come to us. We can't be passive anymore. We're going to have to respectfully demand a change in care. We've got to support institutions like public health. We've got to support um, care for everybody. We cannot, I mean, any physician who practices medicine should see whoever knocks on their door in my mind. If you need me, I, I took an oath to take care of you. There's a recent study out of um, Rural Research Center that looked at the 50 healthiest counties, uh, the oldest counties in this country, the ones that had the uh, individuals of the greatest age. And the one, and they were rural, the rural counties, the counties that had people of the oldest age had the most primary care physicians. So we've got to reestablish that community-based care including physicians, including nurse practitioners, including PAs, including public health, including health literacy coaches, including um, community leaders who understand how to access so they can advocate for people. We've got to have, we've got to have healthy communities. We cannot put up with environmental um, dumping in rural communities and community, communities of color. We've got to have access to medications we need Pharmacy benefit managers have destroyed the ability to go get that $4 medicine because as soon as they figure out that $4 medicine is selling, it becomes $400. There is so much um, ill-gained profit in healthcare that we have people, and I, I'm all for people being paid for their work, and I'm all for people making a reasonable profit. But when you make exorbitant profits and there are a huge population that gets no care, there is something wrong with that. There's just something wrong. So we need to restructure healthcare so that everybody has access to quality care and it can happen. And I believe it can happen in rural areas because rural areas are, do have that, that power to demand it and to come together and to be a healthy community and not let themselves be overlooked. So, you know, we've got um, lots of young people coming along. I've been fighting this fight a long time. I'm just glad to see people like Dr. Spikes engaged and you guys helping get the message out. Uh, it is so important. Um, so thank you for what you're doing and thank you for letting me just preach this afternoon. No, it, it's quite a pleasure because uh, the more you know, the more you grow. And um, my last question that I have for both of you guys we're in a time, uh, myself, two-time, we, we speak to a lot of our friends and some of our friends we haven't seen, but the common denominator when it comes to answers, I was reminded looking through email a few days ago, two months ago, I remember saying to somebody, I am not going out, I am not partaking in anything, I am the ultimate extrovert of all time. But two months ago, I made that commitment to stay in the house. And now speaking with some of our friends, they are quick to say, it's been over two months. Like, what's next? What's next? So I guess my question to you guys are, Dr. Sumner, you are, the, as the Dean of Mercer University School of Medicine, Dr. Spikes, um, your researcher focuses on social determinants of health. Where do we go from here? Well, I, 
I would piggyback to what Dr. Sumner mentioned, how she, the first part of that question about voting. One, we can't afford to be selfish in this time. It's not worth it. Um, I, I strongly employ and encourage people to sit back and be patient and just wait. We have to be each other's brothers and sisters keeper. This is serious. I never thought in my lifetime that I would live to even see something as astronomical as what we're going through right now. But the bottom line is just, it's not safe. And poor and marginalized communities cannot afford the risk. And, you know, it's, it's just not, you know, they, they may say, well, I'm healthy, I can socialize, I can do this and that, but once they leave, they have to return home to their loved ones, to their mothers or whatnot. It's not worth the risk of compromising their health. But um, the second part I will say, where do we go from here? I would like to make a challenge to everyone, not to politicize this podcast, but I would like to challenge everyone. We are coming up on an election season and I would like for people to really, uh, really, really investigate their officials who are running for office and understand and learn what their platforms are. Because this is a long fight. It's an arduous fight. It's a long fight. But as Dr. Sumner stated, I do think that slowly but surely we can begin to break down these barriers and improve the health infrastructure of the population health of Georgians. Um, you know, because at this point, with the medical advancements we've made, there should not be a reason for people dying because they have high blood pressure or dying because they can't get access to insulin for diabetes. So um, I really would like to challenge your listeners and your viewers to really just explore the candidates who are running, learn what their positions are, and given the information that we've presented today, that they can make informed decisions about who their next elected officials will be. And, and I would add to that because Dr. Spikes is right, but look for for reliable resources. There is so much bad information out yes. there. <laughs> and, you know, it's easy for a rumor to get started on some social media platform that's just not true. And people are easily, particularly people who are uninformed, are easily taken advantage of. So look for reputable sources. Uh, look to the CDC website, if you can get on it, or to, to your physician and find out. And then have a plan for your family. Somebody's sick, what are you gonna do? And who are you gonna call? And make those plans now. And touch base, um, touch base with a physician or a nurse practitioner provider or a federally qualified community health center. And access that care before you need it. So you can access them. Um, and you know, avoid bad situations. Put on that mask. Where I don't care. I was the only person with a mask one day in the grocery store, and a week later, I think I was. There was maybe one person without a mask. Wear a mask. Uh, wash your hands. Uh, take those little simple things. Stay away from people. Six feet away. 
the things you have to do outside of your house, do what you have to do, and then you get back in the house. Um, in your workplace, speak up in, you know, in, in a constructive way to make sure you're in a safe work environment. And, and be grateful for the healthcare providers and the nurses and the doctors and everybody else out there taking care of these patients because they're really risking their lives in many ways and, and we appreciate what they do. Um, so thank you for drawing attention to the need of rural America. In closing, my hope for the viewership that we have because they are very engaged is to understand that the greatest sin is not to be wrong but failure to get it right while you still have time. Dr. Sumner, Dr. Spikes, I really appreciate your time, your knowledge and your wisdom, and continue to lead. And we will continue to have this platform for you whenever you need it. Thank Thanks you. so much. Pleasure to be with you. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Behind the Mask podcast, where we talked about the COVID-19 pandemic and ways we can all stay safe during these times. And make sure you get your weekly fixings. Follow us at the BTM Podcast on all social channels. And look, if you, we love to engage with our fans, so make sure you do it. It's this easy. <laughs> that easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.